Hey, everybody. Long time no podcast. I'm back. And I'm back with a vengeance. Working on a number of projects and deeply ready to activate my inner sacred activist. Not that the work I've been doing wasn't rooted in activism. Encouraging others to heal and to find their true path is some of the most important work we can do. But there's a warrior living inside of me. And after years trying to tame him, I am embracing him at last. Welcome home, motherfucker. Let's get to work. In this enreeled conversation, I speak with author Rob Wipon. Rob is a freelance journalist and creative nonfiction writer who writes frequently about the interfaces between psychiatry, civil rights, policing, surveillance and privacy, and social change. This guy's got guts. His articles have been nominated for 17 magazine and journalism awards in science, law, business, and community issues, and he's the author of the recently published book, Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abuse of Guardianships. That's what we talk about today. Let me read a description of the book, just to give you a sense of why this conversation really matters. Quote, Asylums are supposed to be in the past. However, though the buildings were closed, many of the practices lived on. In fact, more law-abiding Americans today are being involuntarily committed and forcibly treated for their own good than at any time in history. But their own good is obviously in quotes. In the first work of investigative journalism in decades to give a comprehensive view into contemporary civil psychiatric incarceration and forced interventions, your consent is not required exposes how rising numbers of people from many walks of life are being subjected against their will to surveillance, indefinite detention, and powerful tranquilizing drugs, restraints, seclusion, and electroshock. There's a common misconception that due to asylum closures, only, quote, dangerous, close quote, people get committed now. But forced psychiatric interventions today occur in thousands of public and private hospitals and also in group and long-term care facilities, troubled teen and residential treatment centers, and even in people's own homes under outpatient commitment orders intended to, quote, help, close quote. For many people, the experiences are terrifying traumatizing, and permanently damaging. Driven partly by individuals' genuine concerns for the, quote, mental health, close quote, of others, and partly by institutions entangled with goals of power, profit, and social control, psychiatric coercion is increasingly used to manage school children and the elderly, quell family conflicts, police the streets, control people in shelters, community living, and prisons fraudulently increase hospital profits, resolve workplace disagreements, detain protesters, and discredit whistleblowers. Thoroughly researched with alarming true stories and hard data from the U.S. and Canada, Rob's Your Consent is Not Required builds an unassailable case for greater transparency, vigilance, and change. Close quote. That's the book's description. This may appear to be a topic that is only relevant to some of us, but given that the now broadened definitions of mental illness 
are such that every single person on earth will at one time fit within them. We are all very much at risk of having our so-called mental illness misperceived and worsened by an imaginative and self-serving psychiatric system that has little understanding of the experiential underpinnings of emotional illness. Not only the underpinnings, but the ways in which they manifest in our thinking and relationality. I had assumed that the archaic approach that Rob details had faded away as we closed most asylums and became more conscious of psychotherapeutic approaches and the adverse effects of psychotropic medications. I was wrong. It is now a much bigger problem than ever before. This is a horrifying turn of events that we all need to be aware of. So listen in and grab a copy of Rob's fantastic book if you can. Unlike the psychiatric profession, it is evidence-based and humane. And it is a clear warning to all of us to avoid the system wherever possible. Yes, I am aware that individuals have been saved by this system, but far more, in my view, have been harmed. It is my view that most so-called mental illnesses emanate from emotional traumas, turning to a system that has virtually no therapeutic tools in his toolbox will often make things worse. How can it not? We have to protect our hearts from further suffering, and we have to protect our loved ones too. So let's begin our journey with one of the great heart warriors of our time, Trevor Hall, and a bit from his beautiful song, Arrows. If you're on a healing journey, do yourself a favor and check out Trevor's music. You won't be disappointed. This journey's got me bleeding a certain kind of feeling ah, But I can never leave it Good God, I know I need it ah, Arrows come straight for my heart Rob, it's a true pleasure to be with you. And I don't say that in a token way. I've had a chance to read most of and at least browse in a focused way um, on your absolutely brilliant book. Your consent is not required. Um, I, I, I don't believe in making, um, you know, books mandatory reading in this world. But I think if, if, if I did, I would think this is one of the most important books to put on that list. Um, and we'll get into why I think that um, as we engage in our conversation. When they started to expand culturally the notion of mental health, the meaning and the value, the importance of talking about mental health and trauma suddenly became a normalized part of our conversation, I felt both completely delighted because I thought, well, finally, even though I prefer the term emotional health and somatic health because I see most of these things as lodging in the unresolved emotional body and then manifesting in our thinking. So I'm more into monkey heart than monkey mind. But but I still, I still felt it was so important that we were finally beginning to acknowledge that we're all trauma survivors to one extent or another, and that mental health became an important part of our conversation. But I also recognized that my concern was that it was going to provide an opportunity for a variety of characters to abuse that. I mean, tyranny always masquerades as benevolence. I've known that since I was a kid. And I don't think anything's changed. I think, in fact, that's becoming more and more obvious all the time. And so the other side of it is, 
And you mentioned this in the book, and I want to ask you about this. You talk about that basically because of the broadened definition of mental health, that at some point along the way, every single one of us is going to hit the threshold of somebody with a mental health issue. The problem with that is then more of us enter into the psychiatric system, which rather than the psychotherapeutic system, which are very, very different systems in many ways, in my experience. And my concern is precisely the kinds of things you've been discussing in your book. So let me ask you my initial question, which is, how did you become interested in the topics of forced psychiatric treatment? And what do you even mean by forced psychiatric treatment? Yeah, thanks for having me and and your kind thoughts about the book. Uh, You know, I, I did it for that reason too. The book has been kind of developing for 20 years, really. And it really came because I just felt this was just so important. I didn't really think necessarily that it was going to be the greatest selling book because I knew it was going to be dark and hard hitting. And those are often aren't the uh, most popular nonfiction books out there. But I just thought it was so important. And yeah, I mean, I've always had a close feeling myself with some of these issues. When I grew up, I was always interested in the inner world and read lots of books and was exposed to some of those classics like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I was also into Hermann Hesse and reading Siddhartha and books about people who are really exploring life and and trying to embrace a broader vision of what we could be as humans. And I love that kind of stuff. So I always had that in the background. And then really a key turning point, which I talk about in the opening chapter of the book in the introduction was that my father was going through a really difficult time and knew my father well and had a good relationship with him. And in fact, I happened to be visiting around the time where all this was playing out, spending a prolonged period with them after traveling outside the country. And he was going through a difficult period. He'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer and, you know, had all the confrontations with his own morality, He'd recently retired and, and had lost some money in the stock market too. Not a lot, but enough to make a mark on his 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 feelings and and so yeah he kind of went through some difficult periods and then the surgery was really quite bad as a lot of prostate surgeries are i've since learned it's it's you need to be careful so with with all the prostate cancer treatments and anyway he ended up completely impotent and incontinent and understandably went through some really intense inner experiences confronting that and at some point, he and my brother and mother decided to go to the local psychiatric hospital to seek help because that's what we're told to do, right? <laughs> when we're really struggling. And he was really struggling, you know, it was a definite shift for him and something I'd never seen in him. And it really didn't take long at all before they said, okay, you know, we're locking you up here against your will. They proceeded to give him about five different drugs. Everything made him worse. He could barely stand, he could barely function. Then they proceeded to, well, we're going to have to do electroconvulsive therapy. And we were all aghast. What? You still do that? We thought that went out with one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And no, it doesn't. It's a prime treatment for depression today. Anyway, this whole situation spun out of control. It was devastating. It was humiliating for my father. He actually lost a lot of memory. Our whole family was devastated. We were in conflict for a while. By the end of this, we were all in unison, like we got to get him out. This is just terrible. And we got him out. But that precipitated my interest right there, where I started to go, wow, if this can happen to my dad, a career college professor of computer engineering with no history of serious mental health issues, lots of family support, 
adequate money, lots of time, like all these things that you'd want to have in that situation. If this can happen to him, who else is this happening to and what's happening to them? So I started to investigate. Got it. And just just so I understand, in that early stage, the moment when you go to the hospital, the interaction happens and they end up keeping him in. I mean, could your parents have said no at that time? No. So the moment they decided, and now this is every jurisdiction's laws around this are a bit different, but basically every jurisdiction in North America has an emergency intervention protocol, which on the basis of just they're concerned that you might in some way potentially be at risk, being a potential danger to yourself or others or something along those lines that they can hold you. And then depending on the jurisdiction, the amount of time they can hold you before you get a hearing is can be a matter of days. It can be up to weeks. And in British Columbia, where my father was at the time, it was three weeks. And in a particularly draconian fashion in British Columbia, which is not typical around North America, they could in that period also forcibly treat him before he could even get a hearing. Now, mind you, they didn't even tell us about the hearings. We were hitting this with no background. So we didn't even know what his rights were or weren't. It was just basically like, this is what we're doing. Trust us, we're in control here. And so I had to, we had to start doing research, trying to figure out on our feet, like, what are these treatments? What are they doing? Wow, they still do electroshock. What is the research into electroshock saying? You know, all this stuff. We're all trying to figure it out on our feet. Principally, he could have said no, and he could have gotten a hearing at that point. But under British Columbia law, I honestly don't think he would have won that hearing at that time, but he didn't get it. And then this is all part of the trouble that a lot of people face. I learned that all of this is very typical. So he was genuinely struggling. And his answer to me was, you know, I don't want this electroshock. And so I'd say to him, okay, well, here are the things you need to do to convince them that you're fine. That is just get up, eat, you know, just just talk to them normally, treat them respectfully. <laughs> like, But he was really grappling with something. He didn't want to get out of bed. And I'm like, dad, mm. if you don't, right, they are going to force you. So at the same time as he's having a very lucid conversation with me, right, he's not crazy. He's not losing his mind in that way, but he's a very stubborn, very proud man. And this, he decided, I don't want to face the world right now. And so they're getting mm. into this conflict. And so it spins out of control very rapidly. And the doctors just start saying, well, we're going to do whatever we want to do and whatever we think is right regardless of what you say and regardless of what your family say. And part of the problem was we weren't all in the same boat here. So my mother and brother were kind of a little more supportive of the doctors. I was much more skeptical. My sister wasn't as involved. So that itself is something they take advantage of. And this is something I instruct people to be aware of in these kind of situations. If the family's not unified, again, the doctors just decide who they're going to side with. Got you. And you got him out. What happened after that? I mean, what, what, were the, um, what were the sort of remnants of the experience for him behaviorally, physically, psychiatrically? Were there yeah. any? Yeah, yeah, a lot. And I'll just clarify to you to ask me earlier, what is involuntary treatment? And that's what this is, right? So there's the commitment portion where you're detained, you're held in an institution locked windows and doors and so on, security guards. These, ho- these psychiatric hospitals are not nice places. And then they just force you to take a variety of psychiatric drugs as they 
basically experiment, trying to figure out what might or might might help you. And then electroshock can be one of those things. And in, indeed, there's a lot of other treatments they can do in principle. There's very little that's been fully outlawed. They're just other kinds of treatments are less common. So yeah, my father got out of this with fairly extensive memory loss. He was really quite debilitated for a while uh, and you know, could really barely talk. At one point, I tested whether he could count to 10 and he couldn't count to 10. He'd get lost somewhere around four or five and things like that. He was, I wasn't even sure he knew my name. You know, he, he kind of acted like he knew me. He was that kind of level of disorientation. You know, it's quite traumatizing to witness, let alone what he was going through. Like he no longer even knew why he was even in the hospital. So eventually we get him out and the doctors did say, oh, he'll get his memories back as if it would be reassuring. It was quite disturbing even to hear that, that to them, none of this was particularly unusual. And yes, so he did. I mean, over the next couple of years, he weaned himself off. He was on one psychiatric drug as well at that point. He weaned himself off that, did not go back to these psychiatrists ever again. We kind of filled them in. He had lost permanently about nine months of memory. So he, to this day, does not really have a clear memory of what happened at the hospital, anything to do with his depression at that time. He's lost all of that permanently. Most of his other long-term memory did come back, although many people still noticed uh, many serious gaps in that. Do do you think that the memory loss and other, I guess, consequences of the experience can be attributed to the um, electroconvulsive therapy? Or is it possible that he had an adverse reaction to some of the psychiatric medication that affected his memory? I would say it's the electroconvulsive therapy. It's very typical to lose, Ah. particularly even that amount of memory. Like It's very common. In fact, it's almost universal that if you do that intensive, and he had about 21 electroshocks over that period, if it's very common and almost usual, people would lose the memory right around that period of time and never get it back. It's much more varied, your, the, the impacts on your longer-term memory or your short-term memory and all of that. That can really vary from person to person. So I would really strongly uh, attribute it to the electroconvulsive therapy. Also, since that time, I've become quite convinced. I've never had my father tested, but I do think he's what we would call a high metabolizer. There are high metabolizers and low metabolizers for psychotropic medications, and the varies are the variation is quite huge. And I think that my father actually processes drugs fairly readily compared to an average person. So again, that just leans me to think that these mm. drugs didn't have that kind of impact. Although I just want to affirm that. I've heard that, like some people, particularly with antipsychotic drugs, can have pretty significant impacts on their memories. And sleeping pills. And sleeping pills, yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it depends on your genetic markers and all kinds of things. And um, I mean, you know, I'm I'm led to wonder, you know, over the years we would see films like Cuckoo's Nest and there were all kinds of people that were committed. They entered into the system in some kind of a psychiatric state or something in a state of disarray emotionally let's say which may have only lasted for a period of time depending on what their context and circumstances were they enter into the system they're given electroconvulsive therapy or they're put immediately on some kind of psychiatric medication some chemical enters their body with no 
I think they call it pharmacogenetic testing in advance anywhere in our world, which I think should be mandatory from an early age of how your body functions in relation to particular mainstream medications. They don't do any of that stuff. And so I just wonder how many people that we used to see in films sitting in front of a window, drooling, looking out the window, are there because of their reaction to the various forms of treatments. And if not for those treatments, would have at some point along the way, whether it was through psychotherapeutic process or simply as a result of situations and context changing, whatever the triggering events were changing, have found their way back to a relatively healthy or normal life. Yeah. And I got to say, I mean, I, I think it's a really important question. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely important. And I think Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, is actually a great reference for this. So he looks at all the long-term impacts of psychotropic medications. What do we know and not know? Sort of going beyond five or 10 years. And it really does look like the best evidence suggesting that that's the kind of impact they have. They, they tend to make people into very debilitated, drooling, cognitively impaired. That's really a powerful effect of particularly antipsychotic drugs. And at some point, yeah, that was part of what my father was on. And we saw those kinds of impacts right away. So again, we're taking a career college professor of computer engineering who was really engaged with literature, read my articles every month, and we'd debate and, and all mm. that. And, and he, he, even on just the drugs alone, very rapidly got to this point where he was mumbling and drooling and unable to really connect and uninterested. It can destroy motivation. These drugs are extraordinarily powerful. And, and so I don't even think our society as a whole even has a, a good understanding anymore of, of these things that we're calling mental illnesses because people are thrown on these drugs so quickly and often for a very prolonged period. We don't even have time to process what's happening. And so hmm. I, I don't have a problem if you're choosing that, really consciously choosing it. My book is about people being forced into that situation. And we're still saying, I'm not liking this. I'm not liking this experience. I don't believe this drug is helping me. Can we please stop this drug? And they're not being allowed. That's the kind of experience that I talk about in the book and that is unfortunately becoming more and more common all the time in our society right now. Tyranny, tyranny that masquerades as benevolence. I mean, you know, I, I think of the, my experience of the two systems, the psychiatric system um, my family, we would go for counseling when we were, we were young, and I would interact with. I remember his name was Doctor DeCosta, and there was another one as well. And I remember just, um, and his primary focus was really on the marriage itself, the effect the marriage was having on the family environment. But I just remember noticing the way they talked. It was so very different from my experience in the psychotherapeutic community. The way they talked, it was like there was something unhealthily egoic and superior about this particular tonality in the way they interacted. This is consistent with many of my interactions with family members within the psychiatric community. I came to realize that they weren't trained in psychotherapeutic process. It was like there was this whole other world profoundly. I'm not talking about psychoanalytic piece. That's a different story. But there were somatic psychotherapies. There were gestalt psychotherapies. There were endless numbers of psychotherapies that helped all kinds of people with depression. I always thought of depression as frozen feeling, that you just had to find a way to activate and energize and move the stuff through. That's my particular bias. The psychiatrists never seemed to do anything like that. They just seemed to have a, a very simple way of understanding it. It seemed like an egoic boost for them to be able to figure out where you fit in the DSM book and to prescribe medication that's particularly oriented to that particular diagnosis. 
how should this go, Rob? Somebody's in a difficult place. They're not the kinds of people who are going to engage the psychotherapeutic community. They feel like they need to be taken to a hospital. They're taken to a hospital. How should this go in a way that's different and doesn't lead to the things that you're describing in the book? Well, I think you're raising a really good point here. And I would start with let's offer a wider range of options at the average psychiatric hospital because we don't right now. People have an illusion about this, but you end up in the average psychiatric hospital in North America today and you're going to be offered drugs, period. That's it. And maybe electroconvulsive therapy. And then there might, depending on the hospital, if it's maybe if it's a private one with lots of money, something like that, they might have a little bit of group therapy or an alt, you know, something else going on. But you cannot stay usually in that facility without taking medications. If you don't take them voluntarily, they'll force them on you. And that changes everything the moment you're on that, because it's then harder to really access these kind of deeper psychotherapeutic techniques that you've been referring to. And I talk about this in the book. I just want to give an example. So Jim Gottstein, uh, an amazing lawyer who's also a survivor of forced psychiatric treatment himself in Alaska, went to the Supreme Court and won, establishing that before you could forcibly treat somebody with a psychiatric drug or electroshock, you had to at least offer them something else. You had to offer them psychotherapeutic techniques or counseling, um, other types of, of interventions. Of and then if they refused those, then you could say, all right, now we can justify this intervention with a more physically invasive technique. And he won, but unfortunately, nobody followed it, nobody obeyed it, and hospitals fought it, doctors fought it, everybody fought it, and they w- managed to whittle it down and beat it back. And now basically, it's, it's not law anymore. And so we're, we're still at where we were, which is that you just can't be guaranteed any kind of alternative options when you go into a psychiatric hospital. So given the remarkably effectiveness of psychotherapeutic process in many people's lives, there can be no question. What are the vested interests that are determined to keep this psychiatric system so completely archaic? It's interesting. I mean, clearly money is involved here. So we know that the American Psychiatric Association is now deeply intertwined with the pharmaceutical industry, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, one of the main quote-unquote advocacy groups in this whole area, still get unknown amounts of pharmaceutical industry funding. And historically, we know it was in the tens of millions. It's just we don't know today how, how much it is. But so we see this throughout the sphere. There's a lot of money driving this way of viewing the world. But when I look at Canada as a comparator to America, and I cover both both countries in my book, I found that things are playing out the same way, even though the Canadian system is far less oriented around any kind of sort of profit-making opportunities. Mostly it's a public system. We don't even have really private insurers aren't really even particularly active in the sphere of mental health treatment of this kind, it's all covered by the public system. Nevertheless, yeah, a lot of the same is going on. So what's happened here is we've had a kind of mass cultural shift over the last 20 or 30 years. I would trace it back really to the advent of Prozac in the 1990s and all of the public relations around that 
and the convincing of news media to go along with this notion of a biochemical imbalance as if there was a, an amazing amount of evidence to support this kind of view of reality and of the human psyche. And so now today, even today, still that legacy is there. That evidence was never there to support that view. But even today, average people will go to their psychiatrist and be told, you have a biochemical imbalance, here's a drug for it. Even though my understanding is there's not a lot of evidence that there is something called a biochemical imbalance, in fact, am I right? No, there's really none, that, nothing compelling. I mean, there's attempts to create evidence. There's been a lot of research <laughs> into it, but we have still today, none of the major, quote unquote, mental disorders of schizophrenia, depression, anxiety disorders. There's really nothing there that we can say there's some kind of biochemical cause. Certainly, of course, if a person's anxious, you can measure certain things happening right. inside them. Right. Their heart rate may increase. You know, there can be biochemical changes that are observable. But what's the cause? What's the effect? We haven't isolated that. And even that can vary dramatically. We do have lots of examples of people who have extreme anxiety or report having extreme anxiety, and they're having none of the biochemical sort of signatures that we might see in someone else. And there's, so there's remarkable inconsistency across the board. And so really, that's why I think this whole issue of consent is vital to the whole mental health discussion. Because again, it's fine if you yourself do some investigating and you say, well, based on what I've thought and learned, I want to try this drug or, or not. I want to try this psychotherapeutic technique. That's a decision I'm making for myself. Well, that's great because you have agency and control. You know, what I try to highlight for people is agency and control is really a really critical aspect of healthcare and of life generally, because it's the difference between, say, sex, which is one of the most beautiful experiences for a lot of people in this life, and sexual assault, which is one of the most traumatizing experiences for many people in this life. And that's what we're talking about. And that's what my book is about, is people who are being assaulted with techniques that, sure, someone else might go, but I like that drug. I tried it, it works for you. Well, that's great for you, but you need to understand that if we force that same drug on someone else, it can be the worst experience of their life. I also think that no matter how much research somebody does, I understand the notion of informed consent or self-informed consent. If there has been no pharmacogenetic testing, it's impossible to really know how you're going to respond to those particular drugs. Some people have a great time with Zopaclone as a sleeping medication. I had a horrible time with Zopaclone. So I think that's a piece of the puzzle. And I find it fascinating. You, how many lives would we save and how much money would we save in the system? I'm not talking about big pharma, big harma. I'm talking about in the system itself. If, in fact, we had this normalization of this information. So when you even go into your family doctor, they punch in something into the system in relation to a drug they're thinking about, and they get an outcome that tells them whether it's likely or not likely to have an adverse reaction, for example. We can do that with psychiatric medication. Well, we need to understand, put that in context. I mean, I think that it's too easy for people to really over-exaggerate what we know and don't know about pharmacogenic testing, in, in particularly in its relationship to mental health and psychotropic drugs. So what we can test for, what we know, what the science is really solid on is whether you're a high metabolizer, a low metabolizer, an average metabolizer. And this is, is very relevant, though. So, for example, with a typical antidepressant or an antipsychotic, 
if you're a low versus a high metabolizer, when you take that drug, you may be getting as much as 10 times the dose as someone else essentially, because you're not getting it out of your system as quickly as the other person. So your blood serum levels will be far higher. So yes, then the likelihood that you're going to have an extremely bad adverse reaction to that drug, if you're a low metabolizer, that likelihood is much higher. And so that's what we can know. And if we did do that kind of testing routinely, I think it'd be very great because the other aspect of that, which we also know, is that all kinds of recreational drugs in particular interfere with that. They can either accelerate the metabolizing of psychiatric drugs or they can reduce the metabolizing. So again, and that can be multiple factors. So for example, if you're a chain smoker taking an antipsychotic, they have to double or triple your dose. And conversely, if you start quitting smoking, they have to monitor that and make sure that they reduce your your dose of antipsychotics. Or you could just be spinning wildly out of control and not due to anything that you're doing, but because your drug dose level is going up and down so dramatically. So that we know. But whether or not someone, say, is going to have like a positive reaction to a particular antidepressant, no, that, that science is very, very nascent and very underdeveloped and just not, not clear at all. But I think this question around low metabolizer, which is more clearly identifiable, and I'm a low metabolizer, low means slow metabolizer. I presume. Yeah, that's right. Um, so in other words, you take the thing the other person takes, but it stays in your system and therefore accumulates for 10 days with the stuff you take the next day and the day after and the day after. So you're getting a way higher dose of something moving through your system than the person is who moves it on out in the 24 hour period. Well, that could just affect everything. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And I just think, again, I'm a gas. Like I have yet to meet anyone who was involuntarily treated, that was informed of this, was told to monitor it. We're t- like we get told, the one thing people do know, and this is a good reference point, is often if you take a medication, your doctor will say, they might say, be careful about eating grapefruit, because grapefruit is one of the foods that can quite intensely interfere with the metabolizing of a drug in a certain mm-hmm. way. So people often have heard that one. Well, th- that's what we're talking about here. There's a particular genetic makeup that is detectable as to whether or not certain drugs are going to be more likely to get through your body quicker versus slower. And you, you should know that and you need to know that even if you're taking them voluntarily. But again, if you're taking them voluntarily, at least you can monitor how you're feeling and make that decision. Go, okay, I'm feeling like this is way too intense a dose. I'm going to reduce my dose. When you're being forcibly treated, You'll say that, and often the doctor just interprets it as as something like a symptom of your mental illness, and they may even up the dose even more. Well, clearly, you know, if you're still, you know, protesting, that means we haven't got you the right dose yet, and they'll often up it. And so people can become quite, quite sick on these drugs. I mean, they have quite an incentive to keep people fucked up and locked in so that they can keep the system going, so they can continue to be employed. And I mean, there's there's so many pieces to this puzzle and there's an egoic piece. I mean, I'm really stuck on the egoic piece, which is the particular patriarchal perspective, let's say, um, that seems to maneuver through and, and emanate from the psychiatric community that somehow is consistent with every other aspect, all these things that we're talking about. And I haven't encountered that very much in the psychotherapeutic community. They seem to be more interested in the existential questions that inform something called mental health have a deeper understanding of the unresolved emotional body, 
how that impacts your thinking, um, how clearing emotional debris somehow creates space inside for you to regulate yourself and to center yourself and to feel more spacious and connected to reality in a different way. There's so much more depth to the psychotherapeutic community than this very linear and archaic community. Um, and it feels to me like it's, it's like some kind of hidden epidemic is what's happening here. This is a, a hidden and dangerous and kind of somewhat homicidal epidemic that we need to talk about a lot more often. Yeah, I look at the data in my book. The best It's very hidden, a lot of this, but the best data we have shows that the rates of involuntary psychiatric detentions have been increasing dramatically for several decades. In fact, there's a common narrative out there that that this is rare and that we aren't doing it enough and all that. And, and, and in fact, the best data we have shows pretty consistently everywhere across North America, the rates have been going up and up and up for a really long time. And, and really, for example, is we have about a six-year data period that a research team looked at in the United States where over that period of time, the rates of involuntary psychiatric detentions increased at a rate that was three times population growth. And both the United States and Canada, incidentally, are doing this at rates that are double and triple and even more the rates that are in most Western countries. So something about North America, we're particularly drawn to using these laws in a particularly aggressive way compared to other parable Western nations in Europe. So we need to look at that. And that's what I've been looking at in the book as well. What, what's really driving this? And now the I thing I just want to comment on with respect to psychiatrists is we have conveyed to them this extraordinary power yes. under mental health laws. And when you give anyone, any group, that kind of power, this is a far greater power, people need to understand, than the police have. The police are essentially beholden to psychiatrist. A psychiatrist has the power under mental health law to order the police to go get you and bring you in. And when the police bring you in, the psychiatrist has the power to decide whether or not they're going to keep you or not. The police do not have that power. So there are all these ways in which psychiatrists have a much broader and more flexible set of powers than we give to police officers. And so people need to understand that. And of course, it has affected that profession, people who are in that profession, dramatically. I really was fascinated by this and very deeply disturbed when I've been talking with people who've been going through the residency training for psychiatry because it became clear to me, and I did not realize this, that you cannot get through that training without extensively, forcibly treating people. It's a standard part of the practice for years, that if you do not forcibly treat people against their will, you know, that you can't graduate, you can't get this degree. It's akin to that you can't be in the military without learning to shoot a gun and potentially take commands to kill. But in this case, you're doing it to real people, to live people. It's a very powerful tool. And it changes people. It absolutely changes people. And, you know, one psychiatric nurse said that to me. When I was interviewing him, he said, look, Rob, you, know, you need to understand right off the bat, everybody you're interviewing who has worked in, in the psychiatric field has done this. We have restrained someone. We have held someone down. We have forcibly injected them. We have detained them. 
We've threatened them. We've done all these things. And that changes you. It changes you forever. He said, there are people I'm never going to forget because of what I did to them as a psychiatric nurse. And that's really important that as a society, we understand that we've created this kind of an institution in our society right now. We've created a monster is what we've created. So what you're saying is that the resident, in order to graduate and become a full-fledged psychiatrist, has to engage, and probably often in not appropriate circumstances, in a forced treatment exercise. Yeah. You might, for example, have a rotation that's in the emergency room of a psychiatric hospital. Okay. Yeah. That's all you're doing all day long is you're deciding, who might I let go? Who am I going to lock up? And who am I, what am I going to forcibly treat them with? What, and usually what, pe- what people apprise me of is they often can't even follow their own professional instincts that they're developing because they're still in training. So they have to think, what would my supervisor do in this situation? That's what I have to do. And so if my supervisor would lock this person up and give them drug X, Y, and Z, then that's what I'm going to do. Even if actually I personally kind of think I might let this person go in these kind of circumstances. So it's a very powerful and transformative set of experiences. And then the, uh, there's another rotation we'll have where they have to do outpatient forced treatment situations. So we have in America, it's called assisted outpatient treatment. In Canada, more often extended leave or community treatment orders. In those, people are living in their own homes, in the community in some way, but they're still being forcibly drugged. And so you have to do a whole rotation, rotation out there as a psychiatrist where you're just monitoring these people's medications, you know, raising them if any concerns are going on, and just keeping, making sure that they're constantly under control. If they don't show up for their drugs, you send the police out to pull them in and you give them an injection or you send a nurse out there to monitor them swallowing their drugs. And there's a huge segment of our population and it's an ever-growing segment that's subjected to that level of kind of coercion in their daily lives right now. So for example, if somebody were to go into a hospital emergency and in some kind of a psychiatric state, I presume that if a resident came at the room, the resident would first interact with them to determine whether or not they were a threat before then activating the system to organize it in a way to keep them in. Am, am I correct? Or would it be possible that the resident, because of the context you just described, would already have pre-organized that based on various things that were said to them from the you know initial emergency doctor or something, even if they hadn't actually interacted with the patient themselves? Both happens. Let's talk about ideally or typically what happens is that yes, like an emergency room doctor, if it's not a psychiatric hospital, it's a general hospital with a psychiatric ward. So an emergency room doctor may make a quick assessment and decide we need to keep this person. There should be, normally would be some sort of psychiatric assessment of this person by, and actually it's highly relevant. It often is a resident. If, if there's any sort of affiliation with a university institution or anything like that, it might often be an actual resident in training that does that particular interview of the admission interview. Now, ideally, how they're trained is it's supposed to be a 45-minute interview. In actual practice, because these are really busy emergency rooms and so on, it's more typical that it might be 15 minutes, 10 minutes. A lot of people have told me it's usually five minutes. So that's more typical. So they'll just interview you. They're really just looking for a few markers. Do you say that you're feeling kind of suicidal? Boom, you're locked up. 
Do you say that you might want to hurt somebody else? Absolutely. That's going to probably get you locked up. Then it, then they're just looking for other other cues and markers there. Like, you know, what is your support system like? Is there anything that might indicate that you might not be able to take care of yourself really well? If we were to let you go, okay, now we've got a liability concern. We're just going to hold you here until we feel safer. Right? So all these things start to kick in. Wow. That's kind of the process. And people need to understand how broad the criteria are. They hear this phrase, danger to self or others, and they think that it means like, oh, you threatened to kill somebody with a knife. Well, it could mean that. But if, if you did threaten someone with a knife, you're probably going to end up actually in the criminal forensic system. It's a whole different system. More likely, when this, we're talking about civil commitment now, there's people like my father, people like children from school who are in distress, people with depression, you know, postpartum mothers. These people, it's that the notion of danger in this context is usually just kind of, I think that you might be at risk of in some way coming to harm is really a better way of saying it, that you might come to harm in some way if we let you go. So then we detain you and then we proceed down this pathway. And then the, bro- the laws are actually much broader than that. Now, we've gone beyond danger to self or others. And now lots of jurisdictions have the grave disability criteria, it's called in the United States, where it's just could be that we're thinking that because of something that's happening for you, you're kind of not really able to take care of yourself very well. So therefore, this process will kick in. People have gone beyond that now, both in Canada and the United States. A lot of jurisdictions have a deterioration criteria. So literally say in the law, if we think you might in future become committable, we're going to commit you now. It's very Orwellian. It's very twisted. But that's what the laws actually say, that if in future you meet these criteria, that you might in future be a danger to yourself then we're going to commit you now to try to prevent that from happening if we think you might deteriorate. So these become very broad, very flexible laws. And of course, when I say this, there's always some you know, family member who says, but my brother, mother, sister, brother was flying off the rails and totally a danger and we couldn't get them locked up. And what I try to say is, yes, absolutely. I know that happens because this whole thing is very unscientific. It's completely subjective. And so every day you can hear stories of people that, oh, well, you might decide or I might decide that person should be locked up. And at the same time, someone else we don't think should be locked up is getting locked up because this this whole system is really not very scientific. It's subjective and arbitrary and it's power oriented. And that's what the system is. One of the things I had assumed for years is because they got rid of something called asylums that there were fewer psychiatric beds, that it meant that you know they were doing more outpatient work, they were moving in, in a more holistic direction with respect to um, the way that they not only diagnose people, but actually prescribe medications and approach therapeutic process. You've made it clear that's not the case. But one of the things that I found interesting in your book was you said there are more psychiatric beds per capita now than there have ever been in history. So where, if they're not in what we used to call asylums, where are these beds? Yeah, there's a huge illusion around this, pretty well entirely created by an organization called Treatment Advocacy Center that constantly talks about the state hospital bed numbers. There's no question that state hospital bed numbers have gone down. Large asylums in the 1950s have largely been closed. And now today, those numbers are much smaller. 
But what they don't talk about and somehow what journalists across North America have never questioned was what did we open? What did we build? Where the whole the intention was to build other types of facilities that were smaller in communities. Did we not build them? Well, in fact, we did. And so what I show is, and this isn't my data, a lot of this came from the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors in the United States. And they did a study and they found that, okay, you have to add in where people, where most psychiatric patients are today, and they're not in state hospitals. About 1.2% of people who get public mental health services, or 1.8% of people who get public mental health services in America, ever go into a state hospital. So there are private psychiatric hospitals, there are general hospital psychiatric wards, a lot of nursing homes now have specialized psychiatric beds. There are group homes, there are those kinds of facilities, there are veterans administration hospitals, there are Department of Defense hospitals. There's just a whole array of smaller types of facilities that have gotten a lot more funding and there are many more beds of them. And when we add all of those up, particularly when we add in these community-based beds, so not just hospital beds and other types of hospital beds, but also these community beds like group homes and and so forth, then the numbers start going through the roof and we find that we have double or triple wherever we can find data so far. Anyway, we have just exponentially more beds than we had in the 1950s. So people need to understand that that's how the involuntary treatment rates are also going up because we have so many more beds. Lots of places to put you. That's right. And another thing is this, this sort of outpatient coercion that's going on. In California, for example, there are some 70,000 people in these kinds of programs where they're kind of either being explicitly forced or just subtly coerced all the time, told, if you don't comply with treatment, we will take you to a psychiatric hospital and they will force you. So a lot of people living under those kind of conditions. So we have 70,000 people in a, in a set of special programs called full service partnerships, they're called. So they're kind of wraparound mental health services that people are put into. And it sounds very nice in a way, oh, they get all these supports, but often they end up being quite coercive. The other thing I wanted to talk about, there's so many things to talk about from this brilliant book, is this the whistleblower question. Um, it seems very clear to me that the only way we're going to make this world a better place is if people start feeling comfortable whistleblowing, particularly since technology makes it so much easier to contain and control um, human behavior. Two things I want to read and ask you about from the book. One of the things you said, and I may paraphrase parts of it, is one of America's most prominent nonprofits defending whistleblowers described it to you as, quote, a bread and butter harassment technique for employers to get whistleblowers targeted for psychiatric evaluations and detentions. It's a perfect way to discredit somebody. And then you said, also, you're talking about someone named Tom Devine. You said Tom Devine said that another common method of psychiatric retaliation against whistleblowers is not just to brand them as crazy, but to drive them crazy. The strategy is to subject whistleblowers to harassment, humiliation, fears, stress, and, quote, emotional battery, close quote, and so they appear mentally ill and get locked up or at least appear much less credible. In the political world, we call this the Martha Mitchell effect, but clearly it's happening everywhere. How prevalent is this? based on your research. If I just take a step back from that for a second, this is part of a broader phenomenon 
I talk about in the book, which is workplace mental health interventions and institutional management. So I found that psychiatric mental health law powers are so flexible and broad that more and more institutions use them on a regular basis. So for example, in the school system, we see children routinely being taken to psychiatric hospitals when they're disobedient, when they're disruptive, when they're in distress in some fashion. It's, it's a, now becoming a really common way, wherever we can find data on this anyway, it's, it seems to be a very common way for teachers and school administrators to manage their institutional obligations. And I found that in a lot of places. And so now whistleblowing itself, we really don't know the extent of it. Tom Devine told me, as I quote, saying that, yes, it's common that virtually everyone, he says, I give this out as a lecture. The moment I have a new client, I tell them this is going to happen. You're going to get locked up in a psychiatric hospital. Are you ready for that? Because that's how they're going to come after you, you know? And so that's the situation there. And a great example of this that anyone can go read about because there's some terrific reporting from the Village Voice on the New York Police Department whistleblower, Adrian Schoolcraft, who said, you know, who had been uh, disclosing about uh, various level, various types of corruption within the police force. And he was very fortunate in that he had been recording conversations and taking notes and copying documents for months so he could prove uh, what he needed to prove that he was not crazy. But the police harassed him in such extensive ways, and they ultimately took him to a psychiatric hospital and managed to get him locked up there for six days. And, you know, he ultimately won a lawsuit. But this was a very, very traumatizing experience for him to go through, to be harassed to that point, to actually get locked up in a major psychiatric hospital in New York City, you know, that can be a very intense environment, as you can probably imagine all of this. And so we have examples of it, but unfortunately, I can't really tell you how prevalent this is. You know, we can't put a number on it because all of this is so poorly researched. All we know is that it's very common for a whistleblower, particularly a high profile one, to get put through this. And I did talk about how you can go all the way back to 1989 and the, the creation of the Whistleblower Protection Act in the United States, where there was a parade of testimony from people in the armed forces in particular, but not only talking about this, talking about how when they had been whistleblowing within the armed forces, they had been locked up in psychiatric hospitals as a result. And most of them were vindicated in the end, but they were still extremely terrified and traumatized by the experience. Abuse of power everywhere, Rob. Abuse of power everywhere. Yeah. I'm so sorry for what your father went through. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything that we haven't covered that you feel is important for people to understand about this secret or hidden epidemic? Well, I think people really need to understand, I guess, how, how brutal mm-hmm. forced treatment is. Because right now in our society, we're seeing all this talk about expanding forced treatment. Oh, let's get homeless people into forced treatment. We're seeing this happening in New York and California, around the country. And we have these family members often who, who really want to use this tool against someone else in their family. And I just want people to really understand how it, this is not a nice thing. You got to stop and ask, yourself, what does that really mean, forced treatment? And what it actually means in practice is if you put up any kind of resistance to it, you will be strapped down, you'll, security guards will overcome you, they'll forcibly strip you, 
they'll stick a, a needle in your body that will that can have a, a tranquilizing effect that can last up to a month or even some of them now are up to three months where you can be heavily tranquilized for that kind of period of time. It can just be a really powerful, traumatizing experience. And then you can be protesting or resisting saying, this is not helping me. I'm having these terrible adverse effects because a lot of these drugs, particularly antipsychotics, which are the most common drugs used in forced treatment, these are really powerful tranquilizing drugs with a lot of adverse effects, some very, very serious neurological damage and so forth. And people can just feel like they're being tortured while they're on these drugs and pleading to be allowed to reduce the dose or get off them. But they aren't. That's what forced treatment is. And so if you're out there advocating forced treatment, even if you think there might be someone in your life who you believe is, for whatever reason, better off, even if you are making that argument, still have respect for all the people you do not know that you're putting into this kind of situation. Because that's those are the people I talk with in the book, people who've been forced into this kind of situation and have never really recovered. Very few people fully recover from this kind of experience. It's like... I would think so. Yeah. yeah. One last question. In your interactions, did you encounter people who went through this forced treatment process and said to you that they were thankful that they went through it, that it actually ultimately benefited them? Yeah. What I found is there's sort of a few things that can come into play. One is people can be respectfully treated in this situation. They can be said, look, we're really sorry. We're going to keep you against your will, but hey, let's talk. Um, you know, what's going on? What's working for you? What's not? Have you ever tried any of these drugs? Would you like to try? It can be a very respectful, communicative process that can work out for that person. They may be held for a few days. They may find the whole environment actually quite pleasant, you know, be allowed contact with their family, not feel under threat at any point. And so those people might say it was a good experience. And I'd say, if we're going to do this, that's the ideal scenario. So there's those kind of people. And then there's another group that as one of the people I interview in the book talks about, it's just that it becomes an alternative that's less bad than some of the other things that can happen. You know, so he wanted some sort of other options for what he was struggling with, but didn't get them and kept the police kept intervening and locking him up and in a hospital. And so he finally decided, okay, these tranquilizing drugs will at least keep me from having to go through that experience. And so he accepted the drugs in that way. And so he said, yeah, I'm kind of thankful because I'm not getting locked up anymore. Right. So it's kind of a contextualization. And then, but as a result, he had dealt with lifelong, very serious adverse effects. And even sadly, before uh, my book came out, he died from an adverse effect from the drugs that he's being prescribed. And my God. It's, my yeah. God. It's so this is so inhumane. This is just so inhumane. Yeah. And so I don't want to, you know, even then, I mean, he knew he was, he was um, really sick at the time. He didn't think he was going to die. But even then, he was kind of saying, yeah, like, uh, you know, I'm grateful, sort of, <laughs> for these drugs. And you know, so it's hard to contextualize it. That's where I just back up to saying, look, I mean, at most, we might be able to justify a short-term intervention with someone to let them try a drug that they've never tried before. And if it shifts their consciousness in a way that they appreciate, that they like, okay, maybe you could justify that. 
But once we get into repeatedly, forcibly drugging the same person over and over again, where they're consistently saying, I don't like these drugs. I don't even care if you think they're helping me. I don't think they are, and I don't want them anymore. What are we doing at that point, right? We're basically seizing control totally of that person's life. And if they've never been violent, and even if they had, you know, we could put them in jail. But, you know, why are we doing this and what's the rationale for it? And we as a society, I think, need to have much more open discussions that this is really a policing action and not a helping action. It does, it does lead me to wonder with respect to MAID in Canada, where people are helped to end their lives. And if they have a psychiatric condition, if that's activated again as part of MAID, to what extent all of this could have been avoided by avoiding the psychiatric community and certainly how this could have been avoided by avoiding the drugs that they are not responding to because they're low metabolizers or whatever it is and how much of all of that has contributed to them reaching a stage in their life where they just don't want to be here anymore. Well, yeah, the thing I find most disturbing about the expansion to MAID that's being proposed in Canada right now is that that here we're saying like, oh, we want to give psychiatric patients rights, but we're not getting rid of involuntary commitment. We're, nobody's talking about that except me right? and some of the other survivors of these experiences. I just mean in the mainstream, it's not really being discussed. And you know that, that's just it. So, so now basically you could be locked up and forcibly drugged against your will. And then we're going to say, oh, but you can, you can get medically assisted death if you want, but we're not going to let you go. Like to me, this is just brutal and terrible and kind of horrifying that that's where we're at, let alone the other connected issues that people don't have a right to decent housing. People don't have a right to a livable income either. And we're going to give them this right. So like, let's, let's get the other rights in order first. Yeah. And we do have to ask ourselves why government wants to have their hand in this cookie jar at all. You know, that's another story for another day. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you so much for writing this book. I think it's fantastic. Thank you for the discussion. Over the moon and through stars